the Apostle John has been an exemplary father. He has ministered well to Christ's children. He has ministered well to his children. He has endured seasons and showers of revival. He has endured floods of persecution. He's been faithful to the end. His days are drawing near. He's getting towards the end of his life. And he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write one gospel, one apocalypse that we call Revelation, and three letters to various churches. We've been walking through 1 John, and we've seen this father speaking to his children. And I can kind of understand how there are different times to communicate differently to your daughter. There are times when I wish I could go back again, and I can't. It would be a little weird if I did it now. I can't wait to have grandchildren. But I can remember when I would go upstairs with Ashlyn, and you would tenderly kind of tuck her in and tuck the covers over and kind of put her in a little bit of a cocoon. And then you would part her hair, give her a little hug, give her a kiss on the forehead pray with her maybe before she goes to sleep. and You're just a tender, compassionate father just wanting to warm your daughter with the love that you have for her. John has communicated like that. Not many times in Ashlyn's life there have been times when we needed to have a sit down. Kind of an appointment on the calendar where maybe tenderly you sit across the table from one another and you you lean forward as a father and you pause. With incredible love, but incredible seriousness, you look into her eyes, you peer deeply because there's some matter of serious concern that you just need to talk through. And you're not angry, but you are serious. John has communicated like that too. He needs his church to know where they stand and there's some serious matters he needs to deal with them about. Then there's some time when you as a father get angry and it's righteous indignation. And it's really not righteous indignation for your daughter or towards your daughter. It's righteous indignation for your girl. Because you recognize that there are fellas out there, there are dogs out there, there's someone out there wanting to harm her wanting to, to mess with her purity, wanting to mess with her future, wanting to damage her. And at that point, there just are times when you just don't love your daughter unless you come out swinging. That's what John is getting ready to do now. The son of thunder last week has kind of started. You've heard the rumblings, but now he booms in full voice. He has absolutely got to show who those people are those deceived people are, those deceivers are, those people who deny Jesus Christ, those liars, those antichrists, he is throwing down. He's, he's, he's drawing hands. He's calling them out. He's calling them names. It is time for him to go to war for the purity of his daughter, of his daughters. And that's what he's writing about now. Are you ready to hear him? 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrists are coming, so now many antichrists have come. 
Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And they went out from us. They were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. And I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and abide in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him, that anointing abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, Abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence. So that when He appears, we may not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. So I've organized this into five questions that I think John is asking the church, but maybe five questions that he's asking you. First of all, do we know we are in the last hour? Jesus talks about the hour quite often, and the most times he talks about it is in the Gospel of John. So you're going to see back and forth that John is telling these people that which he's already written to them. Jesus told his mother, if you remember at the wedding feast, hey, Jesus, would you come? We got a wine problem at the wedding. And Jesus says what? My hour has not yet come. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, there is an hour coming when my people, God's people, are going to worship, but they're not going to worship in Jerusalem or on a mountain. Now, that may sound shocking to some of you, but Jesus says there's an hour coming when that's going to be the case. Jesus told the disciples, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead in the tombs will hear his voice, and will rise. Jesus marches into Jerusalem during his triumphal entry, and as he's marching in, do you know what he says to the crowd? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's here. He told the twelve in the upper room, my hour has come. In walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, oh, my soul, it is troubled. And what am I supposed to do at this point? Am I supposed to say, Father, save me from this hour? And I think it's implied, no. For this purpose, 
I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He then marches into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays, Father, the hour has come. But he instructed his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming when you will be scattered. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And I've told you these things so that when that hour comes, you will remember that I told you. What are we supposed to make of this last hour? It is an hour of humiliation and suffering for the Son of Man. It's also an hour of humiliation and suffering for the bride, for the church. And it's an hour that ends when he is finally exalted and dominated and shows his might as the king who owns the kingdom. Jesus is very clear. My hour is coming. My hour is at hand. And you're living in my hour just like I'm living in my hour, the last hour. And so John makes it very clear. Now this may differ, this verse, verse 18, from what you've heard and what you prefer to believe. But I ask you to look at the inspired scriptures and see if there's any other way to interpret it. Children, it is the last hour. And just in case you don't get it, it repeats, we know that it is the last hour. The same can be said of ages, of days, of times. John, in the first century, I think somewhere around 90 A.D. is writing, and he is going, we are in it. This is the last hour, the last age, the last times. Sure, there may be last minutes in the last hour. There may be last hours in the last days. There may be still more to come and a trans transition into even greater tribulation of some sort or, and greater victory, but you just don't get to reinterpret this verse. John, who writes the apocalypse. John, who understands Revelation better than you do. John, who understands the teaching that Jesus has given him from the gospel, makes it very clear, we are in the last hour. Many books have been written talking about the end times. Many really big and colorful charts have been created. Many sermons are being promoted and many movies have been produced. But you do not have to wonder or speculate or fear what the last hour is going to look like. We're in it. And this is an hour that has already seen the humiliation and suffering of the Son of Man. And this is the hour that he talked about, which will include the humiliation and suffering for his worshipers. And this is the hour that will end in the exaltation and domination of the King of Kings and his kingdom. So since we are in the last hour, what ought we expect? Secondly, do we know we are surrounded by antichrists? Yes, your Bible from Genesis through Revelation talks of one, a singular being. And he doesn't come some distant time in the future. He's just always been around since he was created. In the Old Testament, Moses talks about that one who will come to bite the heel of the coming son. 
Daniel spoke of a fourth beast who would engage against war in war against the Almighty and his people. Isaiah calls him Lucifer, and Ezekiel talks about how he lost in heaven and refers to him as Gog. Matthew tells the story of when Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, was ordained and went out into the wilderness in his time of weakness. There, personally, the devil, the tempter, met him to go to war with Jesus and do him in. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. And John understands this one being. John, in his apocalyptic vision, writes of the dragon or the Satan. John, in his letter that you're reading here, is the only author in all the New Testament who names him the Antichrist. John is the one that says, you people that I'm writing to have already heard in the past that he is coming. And I think John writes this after the fall of Jerusalem. So John is now saying that Antichrist, he's always been around. He shows up in different ways with different names. You have heard, he's coming again. He keeps coming back. He's going to fight until the end. Be prepared. And this rebel who wars against God and his anointed one, David writes of him, but David also writes of them. In Psalm chapter 2, David makes it clear that the nations and the peoples and the kings and the rulers take counsel together and set themselves up against the Lord and his anointed one. It's almost like there are many against Christ. There are many anti-Christ standing opposed to or against or in place of the Christ. In every age, Jesus says, there have been and there will be false teachers, false prophets, and false Christs. And John, in those first verses, makes it very, very clear. Children, it is the last hour. That Antichrist you've heard of, he singular, is coming. And today, many antichrists abound. Who are the antichrists that are out there? Think through this for a moment. Some of this I've stolen from a guy that I listen to every single day on a podcast as he talks about the major forces that are out there that are against the church. That means the major forces that are out there that are against Christ. They would include wicked governors who set themselves up against the Lord and His anointed by enacting legislation that is contrary to righteousness, contrary to His word, restricting that which God would have us do. It includes wicked judges that declare those who are innocent to be guilty and those who are guilty to be innocent. Antichrists include wicked cult leaders, those people who gather people around them to engage in religious activities that are contrary to what we find in the sacred scripture. It includes wicked entertainers who are just so cool and so athletic and so prominent and people are panting to hear what they have to say on any issues, and they use their fame to pull people away from righteousness and towards wicked hedonism. It can include wicked educators who want to get our children and want to communicate to them the teachings of this world that are so contrary 
and opposed to that of Jesus Christ. Wicked corporations who want to squeeze you into their mold, sometimes because they love money, but a lot of times just because they love unrighteousness. They're set on fire by, the, by hell, and they're going to use all of their power and all of their funds, all of their resources to force you into a mold of submission. It also includes wicked social influencers, maybe the media, maybe technologies, maybe scientists. Now, I'm saying wicked before each of those because in all of those fields, there are people who are serving Jesus Christ. And so we are not against government, judges, entertainers. We are against cult leaders, educators, corporations, or social influencers, whether they be media, tech giants, or scientists, we're not opposed to people serving righteously. But they're wicked. They're antichrist. Are you surprised? Why would you be surprised? Be sober-minded. You are in the last hour. It is a time of suffering and war, and you have enemies called antichrists out there. And so are we going to steward our voice. You fight against them by speaking forth truth. Are we going to steward our gospel? Many of our friends out there are following their leadership. It's only the gospel that is going to reclaim them from falling off the cliff into the lake of fire and bring them into the kingdom of God like we're able to rejoice with Diego. Are we ready to steward our vote? Our job is to love God with all of our might. Our job is to love our neighbors the best that we can. Our job is to realize that our time here on this earth is short. In eternity, it will be forever. But he gives us things like voices, like money, and like votes. To do what? Not just to serve ourselves with materialistic, capitalistic vigor, but we love our neighbors. We love our God. We would love to see judges and executives and legislators who have an appreciation for rightness and who enact legislation that really helps out our brothers and sisters. We can't stand it when they're done wrong, when they're, when they're led in the wrong way. So we steward our vote saying, Lord, we want to love you and our neighbors and we will not sit back and just not love our neighbors or you. And are we going to steward our children well? There is a time when they don't realize who is coming against them, but you see the evil at hand and you say, those children belong to me for a time and you don't get access to their hearts and minds. Not until they're ready to stand tall and fight the battle. This is what we do as we realize, wow, we are in the last hour and around us out there are many antichrists. Third question. But do we know we are in danger of, quote, don't miss the quotes, Christian antichrist? I've been talking about the danger out there, but John makes it very clear that some of the danger out there started when it was dangerous in here, in the church. You notice as I was reading that five times in those verses he talks about us. He makes a big deal of the us, Christ's body, Christ's flock. Christ's people, the elect, the family, my children, my brothers, my sisters, my bride. That's us 
in contrast to they. And the they that he talks about were once visibly part of us. They were those who sang the songs, said the prayers, contributed to the offerings, confessed the words, submitted to the water, found their place at the table, played their part. They're in the church. They were Christians in name and practice. But these antichrists who were in the church denied certain truths. Previously, thus far in our study through 1 John, we've seen they denied their obligations to keep the commandments or to walk in the light or to love one another. And then we've made a big deal of them denying their need of confessing their sins and enjoying the everyday cleansing that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in this section specifically right here, they deny that Jesus was the Christ and they deny things like the father-son relationship that is pivotal. So they're, den they're denying the hypostatic union and they're denying the Trinity. Those are big theological words that we'll unpack for you in one of our Sunday school classes. In later paragraphs, they will deny the need to stop sinning, discount their duty to love, and will further deny that the fleshly Jesus has come from God and is the Son of God. So we have these antichrists that were part of the church, that were in the church, denying certain orthodox truths, but it gets worse than this. They now start using their influence in the church to deceive and to lie. They put on a kind face, they gather their degrees, they promote their false teachings, and they're convincing many people to walk away from apostolic orthodoxy. That which is presented in the Bible and by the Bible's writers, let's bring it up for consideration. Let's not submit to it as if it's revelation from God. They're like Delilah. Delilah didn't look dangerous to Samson. She was in the house. She pretended she was one with Samson. Come here, baby. Lay your precious weary head right down on my lap and just let me soothe you and comfort you. Dangerous as can be. The Bible talks about wolves dressed in sheep's clothing because they're hungry to eat you up for dinner. These antichrists, they deny, they lie, they deceive, and then they depart. Verse 19 actually starts in the Greek with the words, from us, they departed. They went out. They did not continue. Or they did not abide or remain. Those are key words. They didn't abide. They didn't remain. They seceded, apostatized. They did not endure to the end or persevere. In the words of Hebrews, they came to the table and they, they smelled it. They came to the table and they tasted of Jesus. They had his savor on his lips and his smell in their nose. But they had no part of him. And they walked away. They were professors, but not possessors. Something's made clear by them leaving. Listen to this. Something is made clear by their leaving. They proved to be posers, charlatans, frauds, pretenders, or in language that you might understand today, 
They were counterfeit Christians just coming out of the closet, showing their true identity. And they and their followers were headed for catastrophe. So though they sang their songs, prayed their prayers, and gave their alms, memorized their Bible verses, joined the small group, submitted to the waters of baptism, partook at the Lord's table, put the Christian fish on their car, and called themselves Christians. John repeats it positively and negatively, or vice versa, negatively first. No one, nobody, not even those religious people in the church who do not know the Son, know the Father. But in case you don't get it that way, just positively, whoever knows the Son knows the Father. They had not eternal life, and their end, when Jesus Christ finished his last hour and came again, would be one of what? Not having confidence, and they would hate his company. They would shrink in fear. They would shrink in shame. They wouldn't yell, Maranatha, Jesus, come. They would yell, woe is me, because they don't want to see him coming. So do we know the danger of Christian antichrists? That there's Hophni and Phinehas, Annas and Caiaphas, Judas. All those are found within the pale of the church. The Bible says not all of Israel is Israel. I think you can faithfully say not all of the church is the church. There are wolves in the church, goats in the church, and elder brothers in the household. We talked about there was Gnostic docetism saying Jesus just pretended to be human. There was Gnostic Serinthianism. Jesus' fleshly existence was only temporary. You can see this in your Mormon friends. You can see this in your Jehovah's Witness friends. They all start in the church. But then they deny, followed by deceiving, followed by departing. And then comes damnation. And I would say that there can be Presbyterians that are in the church but are not of the church. And so far, John has given five tests. What are those five tests? Just write these words down if you want to. The moral test. If you say you love me and don't keep my commandments, you'll lie. The relational test. If you say you love me and you don't love your brothers, you're just lying. The doctrinal test that we see here. If you say you love me, if you sing you love me, but you don't believe rightly about me and my gospel message and my identity, you're wrong. It's what the Spirit does. He brings you to complete knowledge. We have the perseverance test. If you don't stay put, if you don't remain, if you don't abide, if you depart, that's not characteristic of the person that Christ saves. You don't lose your salvation. It just becomes very clear that you were in, but not really in. And finally, I would say we have the confession test. But if you know you're guilty of morality failures, relational failures, doctrinal failures, and perseverance failures, but you, like Peter, confess your sins and run back, he is faithful to forgive and cleanse. That's who we are. We are people who don't pass the first four tests really well, if at all. 
But we hold on to that fifth one, the confession test. And we just keep coming back saying, Lord, we hate that we have broken those first four and we can't wait to try to keep them with greater fervency if you will help us or according to the vows, according to the appointment of the Lord or with his help. So there's the third question. Fourth question. John then looks at the church and says, do you know you've been anointed? I'm running out of time, but I'm going to make it through. Here we go. What has the son done? I'm going to skip this whole page. Lots of things. I mean, he was with the father. He has showered forgiveness and cleansing. Go back and read chapters one and two. I won't repeat them. Lots of stuff that the son has done. But now John takes us to something else that the son has done. The son is the anointed one. He is the anointed holy one who anoints. That's pretty cool. Aaron and his sons were priests. They were anointed, showing that's what God does when he sets apart priests to serve him in the church. David and other kings were anointed with oil. Why? Because that's what God does. He anoints kings who are going to serve him in the political sphere. There was going to be one coming who was going to be the priestly king. What would his name be? We don't know. We know he's kind of the son. We know he's the special seed. We start learning that he's going to be the priestly king. They start calling him the Messiah, which is translated Christ. And if you take Christ and Messiah and understand what those two terms mean, it means the anointed one. Jesus is going to come and he's going to be the anointed one. That's who the people in Psalm 2 are standing against, against the Lord and his anointed one. Isaiah makes it really clear that when he comes, though, this one coming named Jesus will not be anointed with oil. He's going to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is born. He lives the first couple decades of his life. He gets ready to enter into his public ministry. He goes out to the wilderness. There he meets John the Baptist. There he submits himself to washing, not because he's dirty and needs to be cleansed, but because he is waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon him without measure, the Bible says. And he is anointed. The priestly king is about ready to do his work. And as he walked throughout Palestine in the book of John in chapters 14, 15, and 16, I don't have time to read that to you either. He made promises. The exact same Holy Spirit with which I have been anointed, I promise I am going to pour it out to you. Paul understands this and says, yep, that same Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that fell on Christ, dwells in all of you so much so that you can't even be a believer without that Holy Spirit. It's not a second indwelling. It's the only indwelling. You got the Father. You got the Son. You got the Spirit. That's just how it is. And John looks at them and says, you've been anointed. That means you have truth. You have fellowship. You got it. You need nothing from what those enlightenment teachers, those super spiritual guys out there are offering you, you have been anointed. You've got the charisma. Then John gives, finally, the imperative. There's one command in this whole thing. So what are we to do, we who are in the last hour, with antichrists out there, with possible antichrists in here, but we're okay because we've been anointed and we've got the teacher, the helper, living within. What are we supposed to do? 
Here comes the imperative, the take-home for you, and we're done. Abide. Remain. Sit. Commune. This comes from John chapter 15. Let's paint a picture. The Father is the vine dresser. That means He's the one doing all the outside work. Jesus is the vine. Attached to Jesus are branches. Branches bear fruit from the sap, the spirit that runs from the vine through the branches and produces fruit. Let's make sure we understand what this is saying, what it's not saying. Too often we're down here focusing on how do we produce more fruit? How do we get better apples? How do we become better oranges? That's not what this is saying. And John is taking this language from Jesus in John chapter 15. You just abide. Stay connected. And if you stay connected, what happens? The Father's really, really, really good at what He does. He's a good vine dresser. There is absolutely nothing wrong at all with the vine. If you're connected and the Spirit is flowing from the roots through the vine to you, the branches, you are going to produce fruit. And what will that fruit look like? It will look like being helped by the Helper, living like Jesus, bearing witness, bearing much fruit, keeping His commandments, loving one another, getting answers to prayer, understanding instructions, having full joy, and glorifying the Father. And those kind of branches that are producing fruit, they never get thrown into the fire. Because the Father who loves fruit, and the Son who loves fruit, and the Spirit who loves fruit works through the branches to produce fruit, and it happens every single time. So therefore, what are you supposed to do as you are surrounded by Antichrist outside and Antichrist inside and even your own flesh? The command is abide. Abide in what? The Word and abide in God's family ultimately abiding in God. I would tell you that abiding in God looks like abiding in prayer, abiding in the Word, and abiding in the church. Let me say that again. If you're serious about abiding in God, and you're serious about enjoying the fruit, bearing much fruit, if you're serious about being able to stand the day of Antichrist in the last hour, what ought you to do? There, it's, it's like synonymous. God pours out his love through prayer, the word, and his family. So abide in God. Rest in his gospel. Rest in his compassion. Rest in his wisdom. Rest in his sovereignty and talk with him all the day long, communing with him. That's what you do. And you see here, if you're filled with the Spirit and if you're anointed, it's not talking about crazy works that you're going to be doing. It pretty much in John talks about you being anointed means you understand truth and walk in it. 
This is the natural thing that the Holy Spirit does on a daily basis. Sure, there's some supernatural cool stuff that he can do. But the greatest evidence of being in the Spirit is communicating with him in prayer and then jumping in his word, prioritizing it, reading it, singing it, hearing it, memorizing it, and meditating it so that in the words of John or in the words of Paul, you are filtering the lies. You're bringing every thought captive. So as lies are coming in, God's word and his spirit are just the filter and you're letting it filter out all the junk and you're growing in maturity. Then finally, you abide in God's family. This is why church membership is vital. Christ, who has his invisible church, has made it very, very clear that there are to be local churches present, and you're not to be on a roll. You're to be a part, not forsaking, keeping those vows that we make. Why? Because where are you going to grow in prayer? Yes, you have your personal devotions. I'm proud of you. Go live life on a mountain. And then gather with your people and confess your sins to one another and carry one another's burdens. This is absolutely vital. Pray. And where are you going to rest in the Word? Where God provides teachers, where God provides helpers, brothers and sisters speaking truth one to another. This is the priesthood. We're all priests in some regard. And we're all supposed to be teaching and admonishing and exhorting. And then God gives us visible sermons like this in the Lord's Supper. If you want to abide, you abide in prayer, you abide in the Word, and you abide in the family. Some neglect the Spirit. May that not be us. Some neglect prayer. Some neglect the word. Some neglect the family. Not us. We remain. We persevere. We don't depart. We continue. We abide. And the more we abide, the more fun it is to see the fruit that God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit do through us.